Are you interested in small footprint living? What do you think about the effects of good neighborhood relationships? How can we create more compassionate designs? Stay tuned for answers from Colin G. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Colin Chi, the creative director of the Never Too Small YouTube channel. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, compassionate design, needed urban conversations, people as the urban strengths, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Colin Chi is the creative director of Never Too Small, a YouTube channel dedicated to showcasing the best in small footprint design and living. His videos interrogate how smart architecture and innovative design can be used to transform small places and the future of our cities. And the channel has grown a fan base of almost 1.8 million YouTube subscribers of, of 110 million views in just four years. Never Too Small has recently published their first book, Never Too Small, Reimagining Small Space Living, a curation of their favorite designs from around the world. To get a copy, head to their website, www.nevertoosmall.com. And with that, Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I highly appreciate. Thank you, Fanny. And it's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Let's jump into the first question. What does the future of cities mean to you? The future of cities. For me, the future of cities should be more inclusive and more diverse than ever. The future city should be having different types of housing options and sizes that cater for different types of household and people from different backgrounds. Future cities should be not only thrive for human, but also wildlife and nature. And also for the less fortunate, they can work alongside with the privileged people. The future city should be have different cultures and diversities, different voices and languages. And that's what creates a vibrant city. So the future of cities is a vibrant city for you. Yeah. I also think that, you know, the future city shouldn't be only place for people to work, but also with schools, shops and open spaces and amenities where people can live a full life with purpose and pleasure and where people can experiment with their dreams and not fear for being cast out as our cities are being gentrified. I think that's what really happened in many cities in the world that, you know, when the city started to gentrify, we push a lot of less fortunate people out or creative people losing their studio spaces for them to continue to do their work. That's pretty much my take on the future cities. Compared to the current city, yeah, basically diversity and inclusion, do you think is missing from the current city to create this vibrant city in the future? I guess, yes, not only in the Melbourne context, but recently I just came back from a conference in Bangkok where I see there's a lot more layers of people from different status. We tend to look at cities uh, for rich people to live in penthouses or New York style apartment. But in Southeast Asia, there's another level where the cities are also for people who are running other small businesses around, but they not necessarily live in the cities, but they just come into the city to work and then they live. And uh, I think it's also applied in many other cities in the world as well. You know, most people, they work in the cities, they come in and most of them do hospitality works and services. You know, people are doing all these important jobs in the city to keep cities going, but they don't not necessarily live in the cities because they can't afford it. That's what I see in a lot of big cities in the world. They probably live an hour or two hours away from work. In terms of diversity as well, 
I recently learned that in Southeast Asia, especially, there's some discrimination for LGBTQI communities in Southeast Asia that they're a bit hard for them to find rental properties because of discrimination. And I hope all these things that we normally don't hear of what a future city should be, but all these little things that happening, I think we should address in a way. In a way, what kind of way it is? We need to have more conversations about inclusivity. We need more conversation about not just about businesses surviving after pandemic in the cities or how to bring people back to the cities after pandemic, but also people who are already exist in the fabric where throughout the years of gentrifications of how cities become more and more expensive, these people get pushed out. And the way we look at future cities, most of the time we take Amsterdam or Copenhagen as the example of best cities of you know, bike lanes and public transport and beautiful manicure gardens and open spaces. But if we look at other bigger cities in the world that's, you know, from developed countries, there are much more layers in terms of you have people that are less fortunate. You also have people that are really rich. They all live together in the same place. But you can see the clear social divisions within the city itself. Like on one side of the cities, you can see all these rich people who live in those beautiful condominiums or apartment buildings. And you see all these branded shops along the street, all this LV and Gucci and whatnot. On the other side of the cities, you see people living in more in a poverty status. I wouldn't say they are like really poor, but they are surviving. And especially in pandemic, when we see a cities, we're always complaining about businesses can survive. But if we see cities more like a neighborhood, those less fortunate people, they tend to be surviving quite nicely during pandemic because they know their neighbors. They live there for generations. Even some of them live for generations. They run a small business like a little restaurants or cafes, or they just sell a little knickknacks shops or grocery shops. But during pandemic, they're really helping their neighbors out. They really show the support to the local real businesses. In a way, they thrive and they survive, they become more resilient. If cities are missing those real people, real residents, yeah, they tend not to survive pandemic as much because small businesses just close up because people don't return to work during pandemic. So we have to put a bit more balance in terms of how we perceive future cities rather than just having, you know, safe bike lanes and safe pedestrian pathway. We tend to look at in a more design context, but not on a human level. My recent trip to Bangkok really opened my eyes on how we need to not just look at the West for inspirations and ideas how to create a perfect cities, but we also have to look at more of a local context of a existing social fabrics that we need to address about the peoples from different social status and needs and backgrounds where they are really, you know, the fabric of the societies within our cities itself. And each country has their own cultures, have their own language, have their own practice. So each city is individual characters. And if we try to do every city is the same or design every city is the same, our cities just become really homogeneous in a way that every global city is going to look the same in the future. So we have to be a bit more, you know, considerate and a bit more, have more compassion when we design our future cities. Let's go step by step. Yeah. What does the city mean to you? I live in, in Melbourne cities for the last 16 years. And from the very beginning, when I moved to the cities, they are rather quiet. There are not many apartment buildings back in the early 
2000, but there are definitely a lot of apartment buildings uh, developments happening. But roughly about eight years or 10 years ago, there are lots of apartment buildings. But the way we have Melbourne City built in a way, even though it was crowned the best cities in the world, I can't deny that it was a really lovely city to live in. But I also noticed a lot of developments that we built housing in the cities are for investors rather than for people from different walks of life. And even the way the developers market their products to people is more about, you know, getting your investment properties in the cities and they sell it to, you can rent it out to international students or young professionals and you can get how much returns. For me, you know, we have to, in Melbourne context, we have to really rethink how we perceive the success of the city rather than just looking at them as investment products in cities in overall and a place to play and a place to work, but also a place to live. We have to look at the cities as neighborhood rather than just a city being a city. And what I mean by that is that a lot of the time we give how the future of the city look like or how the cities should be to people, urban planners or people who has all this power to make a change. But really for me, the characters of the city should be given power to people who live in there. And sometimes I don't think for urban planning sake, we have to over-design the cities. We can plan the cities how it should be safe and it should be strategically designed. But in terms of the characters and personalities of the city should be given the power back to the residents who live in there. You know, I sometimes get the crazy ideas. We always talk about the importance of open space within the cities itself so people can hang out. So city councils tend to design these, you know, city gardens and these parks here and there. But what if we really create an open space and then we just keep the residents around the space to let them interpret what the place should be? You know, it could be just an urban farming in the middle of the cities if they want to. Or the neighbours, they can say, well, there's not much work going on after COVID. A lot of us lose our jobs. Why don't we just have a night markers within the open space and we want to do it every night. Why not just do it? Give the residents in the city more power to do what they need to do. And a lot of people may be not aware that living in the cities, especially those modern apartments, some of them you are not allowed to dry your laundry outside the balcony because the apartment looks bad from the visual point of view. But really, why not? That's part of the vibrancy. So you were talking about how inhabitants need to be more involved in the city and making the city and making the future of the city. Has the city lost the human focus? Because it seems a bit from your description that you have some positive examples like the Netherlands you mentioned, but generally you feel that cities lost their human core components and the focus on their human core components. Well, I have a very optimistic view on cities should be involved and then put more on a human touch. I don't think that we, we lost it. We probably don't put emphasis on it enough. I don't think we lost it. Like City of Melbourne involved a lot of people in their planning process, the locals and whatnot. But sometimes they are not quite, not transparent, but they're not as open as they should be because I do get some letters or emails from them. But sometimes the discussion in the really weird times of the hours at, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, not everyone can attend. But for me, I don't think city lost the touch with the human, but 
I just hope that they can even be emphasized and taken more seriously. And you mentioned these conversations about diversity and inclusion and to create the vibrancy of the city need to happen more often and again, involving more people and really with a clear intention of what will happen based on this conversation. What do you think on what levels should these conversation happen? Because you mentioned that cities need to keep their characteristics. You mentioned neighborhoods. Although in Australia, cities are a bit lost in between the different government agencies and levels. That's why I'm asking, what do you think? On which level should we converse and communicate about our cities? So do you think that we should only talk about the city and the future of our city in a neighborhood sense? Should we talk about in city of Melbourne? Should we talk about in greater Melbourne area? Or should we talk about Victoria or Australia or the whole world? Which levels should be involved? Where should we start this conversation about the city and the future of city? Yeah, in terms of the characteristics or the neighborhood sense or how we should preserve our neighborhood's identity, I think it should be applied in every cities in the world. And recently coming back from Bangkok and having to talk to some local architects over there, and they do have the same perceptions of how Bangkok is being gentrified at the moment. They're creating more and more modern buildings that doesn't reflect any, they call it Thai-ness, which is embracing the colors of Thai and even the architecture of Thai. They're creating modern buildings that look it can be anywhere from anywhere in the world. You know, this modern building, if you replace the modern building in New York, it still looks like part of New York. So that's why I mean by the sense loss of identity and how the local developers creating all these modern buildings and they slowly push out all the local residents that's been there for generations. It's very much the same in many contexts in Melbourne itself. If we look to look at some of the significant older buildings, being torn down because of very much record development. But I think there's still a sense of we can preserve the heritage, not only from the architecture's aspect of heritage, but it's more from the local culture heritage sense, which in many cities in the world that we tend to forget to preserve them in a way. Maybe they do in Europe, but in Southeast Asia or even in Asia context, When we look at building our future cities, we tend to think about tall high-rise buildings covered in glass rather than those traditional buildings that have been there for hundreds of years that we just torn them down and just losing the identity. I understand this sorrow that we lose a neighborhood's identity with these new steel and glass developments. As an architect, I love older buildings and I'm coming from Europe. Fortunately, in my education, we were taught to preserve what we can and use the historical setting and the historical buildings. In your experience, seeing the emails from City of Melbourne and talking with different designers all over the world and seeing the different cities all over the world, who do you think has the power to change cities? Oh, that's a tough one. From the governance level, of course, people who are in power can do that. But at the end of the day, it was the people. We have the vote in our hands that we can vote for the government that can do the appropriate changes 
for us, of course. And at the end of the day, I think it was the people that has the power to make the change. We tend to look at a good city should be designed by a few experts, but now I'm seeing things quite differently. We all are creative in our own way. And when a city is planned accordingly and smartly and giving some freedom for the community to decide what their neighborhoods, the pockets of the cities they lived in, and that's when, you know, the people will create this its own rich culture and life for the certain part of the city where the neighborhood is. I can be quite positive that every city in the world, eventually they will find the right formula or the sense to make the city safe. And also they can make the city, how do you call it? they can place their public transport strategically and we can make lots of open spaces that can be used by everyone in the city. But for the rest, I think we should leave it to the people who live in the neighborhood or in the city's neighborhood and to design their own neighborhood. You'll be surprised how creative people can be. That's an inherently democratic way of living. Yeah. Do you think it's possible? I think it is possible. I'm quite optimistic with that, actually. If you are optimistic with these, then... Let's go first to the opposite side. What are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities for you? The fear of if we continue to look at the success of a city by their GDP or how many high-rise buildings or how many shopping strips of luxury brands in the cities to measure that as the success of the cities. In that sense, we're not going to go very far with our future cities and they're not going to be resilient. If anything, another financial crisis or everything, the city is going to crumble down big time. And to look at just the recent history during the pandemic of how city Melbourne is with our so many apartment buildings that's really designed for investors rather than for families, you know, how they've been empty out during pandemic because there are so many short-term rentals and also apartments that being rented out to international students during pandemic, there's no tourists and the international students gone home. Cities suffer quite a bit for local businesses because there's no tourists, there's no students. And we have to learn from these lessons that cities can't be just catered for investment products. And we really need to look at how we can bring back long-term residents or families back to our city of Melbourne. I'm not sure whether how many families live in the city of Melbourne before, but that pandemic lessons, we have to really do something about it. We have to relook at how to bring proper residents to the city of Melbourne and to live in our cities rather than just people who just live there for like six months, a year or two years. And that's going to be our challenge. The other fear is, like I said before, is losing our identity, how to protect our cities cultures and heritage and characters. The two fears were basically success in economic terms and yeah. losing the characteristics. Yeah. A question about City of Melbourne itself. In my limited experience with City of Melbourne is that it's more of a business center, hence CBD, Central yes. Business District, than a residential district. Yeah. And I completely agree that it had a really rough few years because of COVID, because people were working from home. Yeah. Do you experience that it's emptier than before COVID? Absolutely. Back in 2012 to 2019, the cities used to be so busy, business are thriving, 
because of people coming to the city to work. And then after work, they will hang out at the bar. After bar, they would grab a dinner before they go back home in the suburbs. And also the numbers of international students were relatively high that time. And then there are lots of tourists coming to Melbourne. But pandemics is really, you know, taking out all those numbers. And I have friends who's running businesses in the city of Melbourne and they suffer a lot. I'm sure every business in cities suffer. But we also have to acknowledge that, you know, what we had before with the numbers of people in the city, they are not there. They can't be there for a long term. means that, you know, something that we've done is not quite right to the point that it's not resilient for the pandemic. So we have to revisit these issues on how we want to create a balance. City of Melbourne, it was, you know, termed as CBD for quite a long time until the late 80s when Rob Adams sort of trying to bring people back to the city and start having these residentials happening. So in early 2000s, that's when a lot of apartment projects being approved. But then there are so many developments in the city in terms of apartments. They are not designed for families or for someone, for people to live in the long term. Even though there are some old buildings being converted into apartments in terms of sizes and design are much better than those poorly built ones. So we have to really relook at if we want people to live in the cities, we need to create quality residence for them. We can't just create investment properties that only last for 10 years. And that's the other thing. I think a lot of Australians, we look at properties as investment rather than properties as home to live in for a long time. And that's the Australian values, I, I assume. And uh, it's slightly different than Europe, isn't it? Yeah, we definitely need to change that. It's really interesting that you say quality designs instead of investments, because some of our acquaintances left city of Melbourne because they didn't have the garden. They wanted to go out during the lockdowns in Melbourne or yeah. they didn't have the sunshine and so on. I'm not sure whether city center could be balanced out to have quality of design for people, for families, especially in the Australian context where the individuals like to have their own backyards and have their own land and at the same time not getting sprawled out and having a dense, vibrant city where people can bump into each other, see each other, have restaurants, have meetings, have music festivals and so on. Do you fear that this can be balanced out in a city centre? It definitely can balance out in a city centre. When I first moved to Australia, I was quite surprised to discover that the definition of the great Australian dream is to own a property as big as you can. And uh, what they call, you know, the quarter acre block dream homes. Quarter acre block really means that, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, when a lot of migrants from Europe, they come over here, they need a house with a backyard because they really plant their own food, like tomatoes and whatnot. You know, as time progress become more modernized in the 80s and 90s, we really get our fruit and vegetable from supermarket or the market, not as much as we plant our own food. But in terms of cities, yes, there are a lot of bad design developments, apartment developments in the city, which I totally hated them, if I could say that, because a lot of them, they are not designed for a long-term living. They tend to design these long and narrow apartments with only one light source, and they're not really putting focus on good air circulation to the apartment. 
small living, it's not just about the footprints that you have. It's more about the excess of natural sunlight, the excess of good quality air, good air circulations. And we not every apartment needs swimming pool or the gym. That's the thing that about modern apartment is they always try to design like a hotel living. If you say something like hotel living as quality, high class living, it's not necessarily the truth. But if you look at good developments like Nightingale in Brunswick, they're putting, you know, um, real open space garden on top of their apartments where people can plant their own food, where people can really create meaningful conversation and connection and relationship with their neighbors, which there are a lot of this missing in the city itself in Melbourne. And I was quite surprised when the councils or the government, where they allowed a project to be built back in the days, do they not look at this and put into consideration? That's my question. I'm not criticizing. And, you know, there are so many missed opportunities that happened and then we should put a stop to it. And we also should put a stop to apartments that's putting profit before people. And uh, we really have to focus on the rooftop. A lot of apartment rooftop just stay empty at the moment. They're just holding up water tank and that's pretty much it. Why don't we really open up and explore and make it into a shared space for the residents and really have the guts or the balls for the residents to really do their own thing on their space. If they want to plant ugly vegetable patch, let them do it. At least the residents feel a sense of ownership to the shared space. They will feel more homely. That is part of their extension backyards. And then we have this mentality, even the way I grew up in Malaysia. Our backyard is really our backyard behind our houses. But nowadays, I embrace another thinking. Our, my backyard is the whole city of Melbourne. It's not just my backyard, you know? And then if you tell me, I live in Burke Street. If you tell me Collins Street, yeah, Collins Street is my backyard. For me, it is. That's how I perceive it. People also have to rethink about, they worry about the pantries being too small. If you live in a small apartment, you can't store enough food for a week. Supermarket is your pantry. Whenever you need something, you just walk down there and buy it. In fact, there's a research studies that suburban people, they tend to waste more food because they tend to buy more food than they needed. They buy for a week and then they think, oh, there's seven days in a week. They'll buy seven days worth of food, but ended up two more days or three more days, they will eat out with friends. And at the end of the week, they'll just chuck away the food, whatever food they're in the fridge. You know, living in small footprints is a very more mindful way of living. Because when we have a space that's, you know, really big enough for us, not just like cram ourselves in, whenever we want to buy something, we have to think, do we really need to do that? It's not a really bad practice. It's not that you are stopping yourself being enjoying the things you do, but it makes you to have this practice to think whether you are impulse buying or you really buy the things that you love or you need. When you live in a big house, you tend to have that kind of action because you know that you have the space to put it. So you put it there whether you're going to use it in the future or not, you don't know. But living in smaller footprint, you do really have a conversation within yourself saying, if I buy this thing, am I going to use it? If I don't use it, it's going to be in my limited pantry space and they're going to take too much pantry space or not, you know? And in a way, become more sustainable. And in a way, we create less wastage in general. And in a way, it will be better for the planets because we don't create so much wastage that we don't need to. And to live in the city, we really need to be more proactive in terms of creating relationship with our neighbors as well. When I live in my older apartment building in Spencer Street, 37 square meters, now I live in a 40 square meters with my partner and my dog. You know, we are three square meters bigger now, luxury. When I was living by myself in my studio apartment in Spencer Street, 
I had this really great relationship with my neighbors upstairs and downstairs and next to me. And last time when I had friends over for dinner, seven or eight of them, I would just knock on the door and say, you know, I have friends over. Can I borrow your chair, for instance? So I don't need seven or eight chairs in my apartment all the time. They only use it one or twice a year. So we have to really learn, not learn, but we have to embrace the flexibility. And also we don't need to own everything. Sometimes we borrow from each other. And then it also strengthens your relationship with your neighborhoods. And to the point that, you know, if anything happened to your neighbors, you will tend to look after them. They will tend to look after you. And it makes the city life more appealing than just people have this wrong perception of living in a city. No one knows each other. And sometimes you really have to be more proactive in a way to create relationship with the neighbors. And people in general are very friendly in Melbourne anyway, and in Australia in general. Two doors down my apartment, there was this 70 years old lady living by herself after her husband passed away. Every Thursday, my partner and I would just visit her and we play Scrabble for two hours because she in her 70s, so she can't really cook by herself. So I would cook at my place. She would come over. She would have some dinner. And then we just go to her place and play Scrabbles. And then she would sometimes buy some cakes and we have some teas and cookies. And it was just this really connections. It can really happen in the city. That's amazing. This neighbor connection is really, really heartwarming. And for me, it's a very foreign concept because I always lived in cities. I always lived in apartments and I never felt the need (laughs) to talk to my neighbors and that's just horrible because I missed out on a lot of connections you were just talking about and I will ask you about this in a minute just one idea to help people shrink their own footprint and stuff they own we moved out to Australia in the last four years and that also helps shrink your stuff because you can't have everything you had before that's also a really good start to be more mindful of your living but going back to the proactive idea to meet with neighbors do you feel that the apartment design either in melbourne either in asia in your experience helps such kind of connections yes for example just put in a Australian or Melbourne context, like Nightingale, the way they design their, their apartments, they create passageways or the staircase that allows the neighbors to meet each other. So it's strategically designed. And also in Malaysia, where I grew up, many of our flats are designed that way. For a lot of the modern apartments in the city where you catch the lift up and you walk down the corridor, which is just like a corridor and there's no windows, there's just light. And you just get into your room, that's it. It's just like in a hotel building. But in Nightingale or in Asia, it's a very different thing. Because in Asia, the corridors is also our little gardens. So people are allowed to put pot plants and their shoes and their bicycles. And kids are playing along the corridor. You know, it it could be noisy sometimes, but it's really create a sense of you don't feel alone. You don't feel alone. And if you walk past the neighbors, you can smell what they cook for dinner. It's a very different culture here. In Australia, whatever you cook, your neighbor is not supposed to smell it. But in Asia, it's a very different thing. We come back from school, we walk past our neighbors, we know what they're going to have for dinner. And sometimes we walk past, we will ask them, you know, oh, auntie, are you cooking curry for tonight? And the auntie said, yes. And then the next thing, they will bring a bowl of curry for you because they, they thought, oh, I thought you want to have some curry. You asked me earlier. 
So that allows us to create relationships with a very natural way. But over here, I do notice that people love their privacy. <laughs> but in where I, I grew up, privacy is only important in your bedroom, but not quite in your living room. <laughs> I love this comparison. That's awesome. <laughs> Somehow that sort of built in with me, I guess. So it's easy for me to say hi to neighbors. It's not just a hi and bye, but sometimes hi and I could be quite nosy and say, oh, is that your dog? And then, you know, I have a dog and then let's catch up for, get them to play together. And that's how you form relationships. And that's one great thing as well. I feel like a lot of my neighbors that I know of is people who own dogs. And then they would take their dogs to the open space upstairs in our apartment. And then at six o'clock, all the dog owners bring their dogs and come and play together. And that's also create a little dog community within the flat itself, the apartment building itself. It can happen really, the neighborhood. And uh, in fact, I know a lot of my neighbors from the, we call that the dog group. We have a group for everyone who know each other, talk about dogs and what happened to them and uh, share our tips and knowledge about keeping a dog nicely in the apartment living. So there are a lot of opportunities, I guess, for city living. And for every individual, we all have a little part to play, you know. We cannot rely our happiness living in the cities solely for designers, the managers of the building to make it happen to us. We have to make it happen to ourselves. We have to change our mindset to the point that we might not have big pantry. We might not have a big backyard, but we have all these other things that people who live in a suburb with a big house, they don't have. And we have to create the best out of it. And we have to be more proactive. Yeah, we tend to have this need to almost give this happiness responsibility to politicians, to urban planners, whatever not working is their fault, you know. But in Southeast Asia, we don't get support from the governments. We just have to make it work somehow. <laughs> so that's how it creates this kind of different cultures, I guess. Just listening to your description, it seems so much more involved and a healthy community, which after COVID, we learned that people crave human connections, people yeah. crave communities. And just thinking about how far these connections could even go. So not just about individuals being better or your old lovely neighbor having companions for her Scrabble games, but also the whole community being healthier and probably even safer. The consequences of creating such communities and connections could reach so far that we don't really think about them, I think, which is mm. a huge missed opportunity, which brings to our next question. What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? There are a lot of big opportunities. At one point, when we look at the future cities, apart from in a transportation, apart from how we tackle our climate emergency, apart from building resilience for businesses, especially after the pandemic, I think we have to look at how we design a city that's more compassionate in so many levels, which I think I don't hear often. I heard it, the discussion before, but I don't hear it very often. And compassionate in the terms that it's not just for people, you know, who run businesses or who lost their jobs, but also for people who's been living in the cities for even generations. I'm not just mean like in Melbourne context, but in a more global context, social inequality and also, you know, the financial status, the gaps between the rich and the poor, they all live in the cities and create this separation between the communities from rich and the poor. 
But then to see how poorer community, they can, they are so resilient through pandemic or even before pandemic, they have to be resilient. How many, the local governments put so much restriction for them to run their business in the curbside by the road, but they still find a way to do it anyway. You know, this local architect in Bangkok told me in one of the older street in Bangkok, which is they call the flower street, everyone's selling flowers. And then the curbside is really narrow. So the government tried to make the curbside safer for the pedestrian. So they don't allow those flower sellers to put furniture or the products on the curb. But those people have been selling flowers there for years and generations even. So they are very clever because the government say you can't put chairs. Chairs definition, four legs, right? So they improvise their own chair. So they use the basket, turn it upside down. It's a basket. <laughs> they use it as a chair so the government can't find them. You know, the people, the authority can't find them. Or they use the trolley and then they put a plank of wood and become a chair. People are so clever and find their way through those communities. And for that, the architect friends, his name is Chat and from Everyday Architecture. So he's documenting all these clever ideas and then he's trying to put it into a book. In the book, he's trying to reconstruct how people create street furnitures themselves using things they find in the street and yeah it's just so clever so i think compassionate is the key thing we need to have for our future design and sometimes i feel like cities are so designed for rich people sometimes i do think that way when people saying our oh, cities are getting more expensive and more expensive it's really it just really cater for rich people isn't it and uh, how can we create a balance for everyone to have access to the cities. And sometimes I think of apartments in Australia, in Melbourne context, is so over-designed. I think because they are investment products. I don't know. I don't have a clear answer for that. But in Southeast Asia, in the Malaysia context, when you buy an apartment, they usually come in empty. They will give you all the pipe connections. They will give you a very basic sink. But when you moved in, and then you can do the renovation. And I wonder why can't we do the same thing in Australia? Because small living is such a cater way of living. Everything has to be really considered. Everyone lives in a different way, you know. Some people are musicians. Some people are painters. Some people are chefs. Some people are housewives. And some people are family with two kids. If everyone giving a 60 square meters apartment and then they design the way they do, I'm sure the floor plan would be so different in every household. Depends on their needs. You know, some people might have half the apartment is their art studio. Some people might turn it into two bedroom for their kids. And some people might make it into like a little class for them to carry their studies or something or teaching or whatever. So if we really design, you know, the bedroom is here, the kitchen is here, the kitchen island is here, the bathroom is here. And then we put everything in there and carpet. It's hard for people to move in to make changes to the small space. That will make small living less appealing because people cannot imagine the way they want to live. It's different if you move in the suburbs, bigger house, people can see the possibility. This room can be my office. That room can be my you know, nursery. We need to have the same for a smaller footprint. And by that, instead of over-design and put everything, why don't we sell apartments that's more like a shell? Make it way much cheaper. So people afford to buy in and they lived in, they live in for five years, 10 years, 20 years. When they live in, they will start designing the place by stages rather than just move in, finish the whole apartment. And then they can do it slowly up and to suit their own needs. Hope to see that happen. It's in my wild imagination, but I think it will happen because that's what how we did it in Malaysia back in the days. It's really 
interesting what you are asking because even in Europe, in my experience, it's not that the developments are happening, that the bare minimum is required for client to be able to move in, but that's also for legal reasons. So for example, a development cannot just give you a sink and then leave you to decide whatever you want to do if you are not involved in the whole development. But yeah. the other thing I wanted to mention is that this could also be a residue from earlier design processes. So for example, Le Corbusier was famous for creating a huge building for 1500 people and created the apartments for the last bit and famously said that you cannot touch or move anything for five years. And that's how they sold the apartments. So probably that's also a remainder from that era as well. Yeah. When I first moved into my 37 square apartment, this is the first one. When I moved in, because I bought it off the plan, back in the days, they are so expensive. And I was totally appalled because it's not exactly come from the plan, but they gave me more storage than I needed. And they also gave me more carpet than I needed. <laughs> so... When I first moved in, I said to the developers before they were built, I said, can you not do carpets? I want to change it to wooden floor instead. They said, no. Because of that, I have to wait for it to finish. Once I moved in, the first thing I did was I take all the wardrobe off because I don't need it. Just make the studio apartment look so cramped. So once I take them all off, I had to throw them away. Back in the days, I don't know where to throw them. I was still stupid then. It just go to waste, to landfill. I went to Ikea and bought the Ikea wardrobe that suits myself. And then I have to rip off the carpet because I'm allergic to carpet and then replace with floating floorboard. And the carpet, I'm pretty sure they go into tip as well. So it creates such a waste that unnecessary mm -hmm. just simply because of the financial benefits from out of it. And I think that's a much better process or much better way we can make for future buyers, home buyers that really want to create their own homes, the options to choose to design, especially design their own home, especially for small footprint living. And I have to say living in small footprint for the last, I don't know how many years now, since 2004, it is a very, very clear way of living. And once you've done it right, it is very fulfilling experience. It's a great place to live. But if you don't get it right, it can be a hellhole to live in, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sure it's the same as a big house anyway. Yeah. Probably, yes. Yeah. Okay, so the opportunities were beside the usual transportation, climate emergency solving and business resilience yeah. were designing for compassion and mm. resilience of people. Yeah. Amazing opportunities, to be honest. What are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities for you? The biggest strengths is people power and I can't think of anything else. Why do you think that people's power is the biggest strength? At the end of the day, how the cities are running or performing or living or how vibrant the cities are, it's really come down to the people who live in it and the people who run the city, who live in the city, the citizens of the city itself. This is why it's so important to create a city that has different cultures and diversities that's really giving that kind of age to it. I have changed a little bit over the years. I used to think a city has to be like as brilliant as Copenhagen or Amsterdam. Everything is almost perfect. But nowadays, I embrace a bit of age of the cities. There's a lot of surprises. I don't think a good city has to be perfect. 
a good city should be the one that celebrates the people who's been living there for generations. People have been made a city known of what it is for a long time. And we shouldn't just take them out, push them to the edge of the cities and forgetting about them. Because those are the people that's even their forefathers that makes the cities happen at the first place. And we have to really look into those older businesses that have been in the cities for generations. They might not surviving through a lot of the modern times, but how can we make them survive? Would the government give them a bit of support in a way, not just financial, but also, you know, get some experts to help them to keep the business going? So the strength is people's power. I like that strength. Colin, thank you so much for your answers. I highly appreciate your time. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? I think my role would come from the never too small context for sure. And living in small footprint is not only sustainable for city or urban context, but it is really one part of the whole concept of how we should create our future cities, which is like only one piece of the puzzles in the bigger pictures which couldn't flourish without the others together. And at the end of the day, the future way of living in the cities, for never too small, it should be a fuller way of life living in our future cities. It's not so much about being small and sexy. It's more about embracing the small footprint, but also live within the city itself. The city is our backyard. The cities should be where we hang out with people that we love, that we are our neighbors. And then the fabric of the society is really an extension of our bigger families. We might not blood related, but somehow we are going to touch each other in our life. And we really have to be more proactive in terms of creating our relationships with our neighbors. That's what my advice is. (laughs) Yeah. And then look at design, not in the place of being sexy. Look at the design in the place of how it can make your small space turns into a little heavens for yourself. There's nothing called expensive design going to make a great living. It's more about turning great ideas that can make your small homes into heavens. That's why I'm always trying to preach to people. The beauty about small space design ideas is that you can always apply them into a bigger place, but you can't really do it the other way around usually. So with Never Too Small, I think we have a role to really showcase all the best small footprint living and design ideas for people. And hopefully people can take the ideas and then they can adapt it. They can improvise it to meet their own needs and also their own budgets. Not necessarily mean that you have to copy the ideas 100%, but you can take the ideas and improvise it as your own, which is my main goal because I do take a lot of good ideas from Never Too Small and apply in my own tiny apartments and do it my own version with IKEA furniture, for instance. <laughs> and <laughs> that's my role. I think I will continue to collect or curate more small space design ideas from all over the world. And the other things I would like to explore in the future is that for Never Too Small, obviously we are looking more into sustainable design in terms of furnitures and whatnot in uh, everything that's designed in a circular manner and uh, how can we create a circular economy through furniture design and making and this is what we're going to look at we have done that during melbourne design week but i hope to take the exhibition model to different parts of the world to singapore to london to bangkok to whatever new york and get their own designers to come up with their own multifunctional chair design for small space living 
using only sustainable materials and then see how we can go with that. And hopefully with that, we can also trigger people to think differently about furnitures that they buy and they own and the relationship we should create with our furniture. And also, I think Never Too Small has a role to play on how people perceive beauty in terms of interior design. A lot of time we look at interior design, a good interior design by how expensive the materials are or how slick or how chic the place look like. But for me, beauty present in so many facades and not just aesthetically, but sometimes beauty is present in a way about how good the idea is. And sometimes secondhand furniture or interiors that design with salvaged building materials can be as sexy as hell than, you know, those new materials, which I think we should embrace more. And never too small, we, as a channel or a platform, we have the power to sort of change people's perception of what beauty is, especially for small footprint living. I know it small footprint living is so common in many Asian and European countries, but they are still not common in many other countries and definitely not in Australia yet. I know that a lot of people love to hate or hate to love for never too small sometimes, but it's good that we create a conversation. Well, most of the time we get a lot of positive comments, but sometimes we get some negative comments about people questioning how small footprint livings can be a quality of life. But it's good that they're starting to have the conversation. They're starting to think about that. You know, sometimes when people criticizing the design, they say, oh, if I was to live there, I wouldn't put a sofa over the windows, but on the other side of the windows. People see it as negative. The person who's watching the video, they are thinking in their head if they live there. How wonderful is that? They're picturing themselves in that space and they're starting to put their own needs. If they live in the house, how would they do it themselves? Yeah, I think that's the role that Never Too Small we have that we can play as well. Even though we don't directly tell people what to do, but we show them the best examples and then let them think. It's amazing. And thank you. As an architect, I really appreciate how diverse and how well curated your exhibition of small places is. And I cannot wait to see the amazing furnitures from all over the world. Colleen, thank you so much again for your time and your answers and your work. I highly appreciate it. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? Yeah, let's watch and subscribe our channels, whether you like it or not. But have a look and see what you think. You know, we highly appreciate if you can also check out our books called Reimagining Small Space Living. We curated 30 projects from all over the world with very detailed floor plans. And we put a lot of love writing the book. And hopefully you can check them out. You can buy them through our website, nevertosmall.com. You know, if you don't want to pay the shipping fees, maybe you can check out your local Amazon or your local bookstores and support the local bookstore first before you go to Amazon. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you. It was really interesting to hear from Colin how much a city needs people to survive, in his opinion. Not to mention his understanding of small footprint living as a mindful way of living. Dave Hackens talked about similarly rebellious ideas for urban living in episode 111. You can find out more about Colin online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Colin's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. 
What is the future for cities podcast?